Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cole. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we talk and, th and think about the relationship between international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to talk about mega events. Mega events, things like the uh, Soccer World Cup, international expos, and other large-scale festivals are often pointed to by cities and nations as the really significant things they do that they contribute, and tremendous hopes are attached to hosting these kinds of events and attending these kinds of events. Simon, from your point of view, do you think they carry too much freight? Uh, are uh, do people, do governments put unreasonable expectations on mega events? On the whole, Nick, I think they do. There seems to be a very widespread belief amongst governments that if you can only, if you can only get the invitation to host a major event, particularly the men's, the FIFA Men's Football World Cup uh, or the Olympics, all you have to do then is to run it avoid disasters, and it will somehow, in heavy quotes, because I hate the word brand, your nation and your city. It will somehow put you on the map. It will boost your country's mm -hmm. fame and celebrity. And I've found that it can occasionally raise the profiles of countries and cities, but never for very long. And in the overwhelming number of cases, it actually has no effect at all, or even a negative effect. So some of, the, uh, some of the big events that I've looked at in detail and researched specifically just to try and find out actually what is going on have revealed some quite surprising things happening here. And I suppose it's just typical of governments that they don't bother to research things. They just assert opinions. And they say, everybody's talking about us. We're in the press. We're world famous because we're hosting the World Cup. And therefore, that boosts our image. This is what you hear people saying about the um, South Africa uh, FIFA men's uh, football championship. And the general tale that you hear is, yes, OK, it did cost us an awful lot of money, uh, considering we're a developing country, but boy, it put us in the limelight. Or, but boy, did it improve our reputation. And the research quite clearly shows the opposite. It actually damaged South Africa's reputation very seriously. South Africa's international image was better and improving two years before the World Cup than afterwards. So it actually set them back two years or more. Yeah, I, I think when I, when I looked at that particular one, it was clear that people had uh, an overly optimistic picture of South Africa based on the positive press since the end of apartheid. And I think that it was a reality check when people went there and realized there are still tremendous problems. There are still a lot of people who don't like each other. The country, the reality is, is troubled. And, uh, and it didn't really help South Africa to have, you know, I, I went into the National Archives and they said, oh, sorry, we haven't got any, um, we haven't got any uh, up-to-date uh, cataloging system because the money for that was diverted to the Soccer World Cup. And there's nothing we can do about it. So there were other parts of South African life that were put on hold to make sure they had the stadiums and the toll roads. And I'm not sure it was a good move for South Africa to do that either. No. 
See, I think I think we we the public tell ourselves stories about the development of certain countries, which are which are a little bit unrealistic. And South Africa's story, from the nation of apartheid to the rainbow nation, personified, and we've talked about the power of individuals to do that by the figure of Nelson Mandela, and all of those things, as you say, the end of apartheid. Uh, most most of us, most ordinary people, we have no idea how long economic development takes. And I think we kind of assumed that that was it. The story was over. South Africa was now a fully paid up member of the developed world. It was a bit of a shock when the World Cup happened. And suddenly people were looking at South Africa for hours and hours and hours every day. Because the thing I'm often saying to governments is it's actually not the sporting events. It's not the matches that people look at. They expect to see those and they expect them to go well. What they're looking at um, is the hours and hours of footage outside the events, because all those hours of broadcasting have to be filled somewhere. And of course, what do the broadcasters all around the world do when they've been sent to South Africa or wherever it is? They spend their time trying to pick up local colour, trying to record interesting scenes of daily life. And they're very interested in a thing called contrasts and South Africa because it makes good TV. And South Africa, you know, you get on the on the, the train from the airport and, and you, you pass through shanty towns. And, and all of the evidence from the research was that, that people, particularly in developed countries, they looked at this and they said, my God, South Africa's in Africa. And it took them by surprise. And so they, they, in their minds, they marked South Africa down quite savagely. The only people in the, in the study who didn't do that were the Egyptians, because it doesn't look all that different from their own country, and it didn't surprise them. But people who live in posh, clean places like Germany or New Zealand, they looked at it and they were, they were appalled. And they said, oh, my God. But I think that, you know, if we were making an argument where, where you see it helping a country, I think that the Barcelona Olympics was part of this process of telling Europe that, Spain has moved on. It's it's not the Spain of uh, General Franco. It's this the coming out party for this modern democratic country. But in, the Olympics came at the end of the transformation. It's maybe the last thing that happened in presenting the new Spain to, to Europe. Same with the Civil World's Fair, that these things were at the end of the process and a genuine transformation had happened. They weren't making a claim about something that, that hadn't occurred yet. But I would add to that, it, for, for Spain, it wasn't just a coming out party, it was a coming back party. Coming back. And, 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 the, and the message was that up until the death of Franco, it, it, it hadn't been very long since Spain was under fascist rule and had sort of disappeared from the, from the ranks of the popular European nations. But, but the collective memory of Spain being a wonderful, civilised, peaceful creative Western European democracy was a very recent memory. Completely different matter, for example, from the countries that came out of the Soviet Union, because they'd been, as it were, absent from the consciousness of the West for more than a lifetime. And that and that's why those countries have basically had to reconstruct themselves or their their imagen. Uh, from from zero because nobody remembered anything about them. The ones with famous capitals, uh, Prague uh, in particular, or, or, or um, Belgrade, or what have you, some of the, some of these, those other beautiful cities in Eastern Europe, those have still retained some equity, as it were, and so they've been able to restore tourism back to those places. But but most of the countries that emerged from the from the Soviet Union found that that anything good that anybody had remembered about them was long gone, and Spain wasn't like that. But another way, another argument that I would make for the positive is sometimes 
an impending mega event can prompt a country to pull its socks up. If you look at the Olympics in Seoul, the fact that South Korea was going to host the Olympics really put a, a time pressure on democratization and, and, and reform. And the country that actually hosted the Olympics was a much better country to live in than the, the country that had, that had won the bid. So, um, But I agree with you that it's easier to find uh, examples of countries that were oversold. You know, you could look at the, I think, the Athens Olympics damaged or revealed damage to the reality of Greece and the same with the Rio Olympics. Yes, I was going to talk about Rio. That's a, that's a whole a whole special case. What, what you said just now, um, Nick, is, is interesting about how the knowledge that people are about to come encourages countries to clean their act up it's a it's a, you know it's a little bit like when you're when you've invited a bunch of people around to your house and you suddenly realize you've got to tidy up and there are there are plenty of cases where the tidying up was really left a bit too late and all it involved was sweeping a bunch of stuff under the carpet the commonwealth games in india being the classic case of that and and it all came out from under the carpet while while the, while the guests were there and and didn't look good but but Brazil, oh my, Brazil. I mean, of all the cases I've studied, this is the one that has done the most lasting, worst damage to the image of the country. Because in many ways, you see, Brazil, this is the only correct um, prediction I've ever made about the Nation Brands Index results. I knew this was going to happen. I'm always wrong. <laughs> On this occasion, I was right. Because, because Brazil and South Africa are rather similar. They'd both been, quote unquote, selling a positive image of themselves for the world for some time. And where South Africa had Nelson Mandela, Brazil had Lula da Silva, and where South Africa had the, this idea of the rainbow nation, Brazil had this idea of, of being a, a brick nation. Okay, so that's a little bit technical, but lots of people heard about it, even if they didn't know what it meant. And, and the expectations, again, were that Brazil was a super modern, super successful country. And unlike South Africa, it had always had a rather good image because of football and samba and and uh, and all the rest of it when the which which one happened first it was the football first wasn't it and then the olympics because they had them one after the other four years apart and first they had the the men's football world cup and exactly as the case with south africa re revealed a country that was divided unequal violent laden with problems and people looked at it and thought oh my god this isn't what i thought brazil was like so they downgraded it in their estimation. And then four years later, just in case they hadn't got the message, along came the Olympics and it was even it was even worse. It really polished it off. Brazil's image has still not recovered from the double whammy of those two major events. So I think the, 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 the lesson for countries that are thinking of hosting these kinds of events is very, very clear. Only do it if you're absolutely certain there's nothing you wouldn't want the world to see. If there's anything there that you're not proud of, that you think people might might not be impressed by, sort it out before you even think of starting a bid. Mm. Uh, but the, but the, you know, but this can also be quite an interesting process for a country to go through. And if we think about the Sydney Olympics, for example, that really prompted a, a, a period of reflection within Australia as to what Australia stood for, and most particularly. How did Australia relate to its indigenous population and how would indigenous people be brought into a process of welcoming the world? And Australia took a decision that they had to be front and center. And that 
really required a, a kind of a national debate. And when you and I visited Australia, it was really noticeable the extent to which you know, indigenous culture, indigenous welcomes uh, and respect for acknowledgement of an indigenous presence was now part of how Australians do things. And and that is that is since the Olympics. And so it's a I think it was a really positive change uh, coming out of a mega event. But it's doing exactly this process. Think, well, what wouldn't people, you know, where are our problems? What do we need to address before the world comes? But I've got another type of mega event that that I think is a a positive trend, and that is the co-hosted mega event. And in a way, this is a way of of building a link between the thing that Simon doesn't like uh, with the thing that Simon does like, which is collaboration. I thought that it was really encouraging the joint soccer world cup between Japan and South Korea. And now if you look at the bids for soccer world cups, it's, it's, it's now normal to see a joint hosting bid. I think the low countries offered to do a bid on the last cycle. I believe that uh, South Korea has proposed a joint Olympics that would be um, a 2032, that would be North, a joint North and South Korean Olympics. And, and for the Soccer World Cup, there's an uh, upcoming games that will be US, Canada, Mexico. So it'll be like the North American Soccer World Cup. It's probably necessary to bring in other people to get a, a large number of soccer fans in the United States. <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps it's not the most po- popular thing for televised sports anyway. But uh, that, that has to be encouraging to me- make a mega event a thing we do, not just a thing... I do, not just this this showing off. What do you make of that trend? Well, I, I agree with you that it's nice and it sends out a nice message. Um, countries are also judged by the company they keep, and it can be it can be beneficial if you choose the right partner. I suspect the real rationale is uh, just in order to spread the risk a bit. <laughs> oh, cynical! So cynical. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it, Nick? I mean, just about every country that's ever hosted one of these mega events, it's cost them billions. So, you know, why wouldn't you share that with your neighbours? But I, I just want to go back two steps, if I may, because you said an interesting thing, amongst all the other interesting things, about the Sydney Olympics and the uh, treatment of the Aboriginal peoples. And it occurred to me as you were saying that, that, as as you know, according to what I call the good country philosophy, uh, and according to the research behind that, just about the only thing that can make a difference to the way the world sees a particular country is what it does outside its own borders. But I wonder if perhaps the way you treat your own indigenous peoples isn't the one exception to that, because a good country isn't just a country that harmonizes its domestic and international responsibilities. It's also a country whose modern population comes to term with its comes to terms with its ancestral populations, and that's a that's a kind of goodity horrible word sorry which is very similar to the kind of goodity we're talking about when we talk about a good country it's almost a way of exercising foreign affairs domestically because it's a people or a nation and its relationship with another people another nation even though they live in the same territory it's a little bit like foreign affairs and i think people deduce an awful lot from this new zealand of course um, have also been pretty good about the way they've handled the relationship with the Maori. And both Australia and New Zealand have been examples that many other countries have followed. And I think this sort of stuff, if it's sincere, if it's maintained, 
if it's genuine and you're not doing it just for the applause, these are ways of getting people to realise that you're the kind of, that they feel glad you exist. Yes, I think that New Zealand really did it before Australia did. And, and you can see a sort of a chain reaction when uh, New Zealand does it, then Australia does it, then uh, Canada does it within the Commonwealth. But I, I agree that that is a, attractive to outsiders. And I'm sure it's part of New Zealand's soft power right now is the, the way in which that's the way in which that's managed in a very natural way and that it, it's part of i have to use the term brand but it's part of what new what new zealand does in the world and and that was something that I, I i challenged australian diplomats on because i was saying you know it's great that you do this land acknowledgement in your own country but why don't you do that when you come to our country when you're in uh doing events in california why don't you acknowledge the original owners of the land in California. And in fact, some New Zealanders and Australians now do do that. So for example, last year's Oscars, Taika Waititi, the, the New Zealand film, filmmaker, acknowledged the indigenous people of California uh, during the Oscars, which was, I think, Im Im impressive. And if it's good for home, it has to be good and appropriate to use. A, a, and that's part of walking the walk. Yes, yes. And, and, and the objection, predictably, of course, that one hears from many, many people is, oh, they don't mean it. They're just forms of words. It's a way of not facing the real problem. You say the sentence and you think you've uh, absolved yourself from, uh, from guilt and all the rest of it. But I don't really agree with that. I don't know. The older I get, the less inclined I feel to question people's motivations for doing things. I think it's presumptuous. You don't know why people do things. All you can really do is observe whether they're doing them or not. And if they're doing the right thing, it hardly matters whether they're doing it for the wrong reason. The important thing is that it be, they're seen to be doing it and it becomes a shared habit and it becomes society. It becomes culture that we do that. I have this argument very frequently when people are talking about corporate social responsibility. They get angry with a manufacturer because they say, oh, they closed down this sweatshop in Bangladesh, but they didn't really care about the workers there. They only did it to boost their share price. Well, so what? Isn't it better than not doing anything at all? And anyway, there's something about human nature. There's a little mystery I've often observed over and over again. You see people doing the right things for the wrong reasons just to warm the embers of their cold hearts and to boost their share price or because the PR agency tells them to. And they do it and it sort of works. And suddenly they find that that sensation of being admired for moral reasons is absolutely addictive. And from that point onwards, they will do literally anything to get more of it, even to be genuinely good if that's what it costs. So I think we should allow people to do the right things for the wrong reasons. I want to introduce into this the problem of being a, a large state and people expecting you to be able to host these events. And this goes to the concept you've talked about of, of, of a large and successful state like uh, Germany or the UK having to pay rent on their status. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it was simply to say that there are some, e even if um, th these major events don't do nearly as much for a country's profile as people would like to think, nonetheless, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're worthless. You just have to be very realistic about what you can do, and you have to do a very serious cost-benefit analysis of this. That was a conversation I remember you and I had around the London Olympics in 2012. All of the research showed that nobody changed their minds about the UK after the London Olympics. And indeed, why would they? 
I mean, before London hosted the Olympics, it was exactly the kind of city and exactly the kind of country that most people would say it's modern, it's capable, it's well organized, it's creative, it's imaginative, just exactly the sort of country that would put on a really good Olympics. You put on a really good Olympics, why would they change their minds? It's simply confirming what they already expected of you. Now, that doesn't mean that it's worthless, because, of course, from the point of view of uh, the British government, there are millions of children growing up in China, just to give one particular example, who don't learn anything about British history. Why on earth should they? Relatively little about European history. They don't know the difference between Britain and Belgium or Britain and Bhutan. And therefore, something like a major event, if you do a really good job, is a way of reminding people that you're there and re reminding people what you're capable of, of doing and giving. So the, the phrase was, the reputation is never something you own, it's something you rent, and the rent right. needs to continue to be paid. So I think there was an example of why it probably was worth all the money, and particularly so in the case of the, of the London Olympics, because there were some projects attached to it, one of which I remember particularly, which were really what I would call good country projects. One of them was a project called International Inspiration, and the idea was that it would involve um, a large number of other countries, mostly developing countries, in the four years leading up to the event and help them to have better access to sport. Yes, and it wasn't just sport for typically abled people. It was sport for people with disabilities. And this was very, very important. To me, one of the great breakthroughs in the Olympics now is the inclusion within the Olympics of Paralympics and giving a global status to those kinds of re requirements. The access requirements to host an Olympics now, it's, they're like these little islands of disabled accessibility that pop up in, in places to conform to global regulations. But I, no, I thought that that was really helpful to see events crafted to be inclusive for people with disabilities happening in Nigeria, happening in China. That was fantastic. And it was wonderful that that was built into both the bid for the Olympics and the public diplomacy around the Olympics. That's what the Foreign Office talked about in the run-up. Although my agenda is very far from boosting what the UK does just because it's the UK, rather the opposite, as you, as you know. Nonetheless, I remember being in those meetings in and around the Foreign Office and thinking to myself at the time, I've been in loads of these meetings in loads of countries over the years. And every single time up until now, the question that that group has been asking itself has been basically and understandably, how can we make the best of this amazing opportunity? Suddenly, here was a group saying, how can we best share this amazing opportunity? And a little light went on over my head and I thought to myself, my God, this is the way you should do major events. Yes. I had the, the same experience. One problem, though, I think this business of paying rent also applies to participating in other people's expos. Mm. And that, you know, the, the, the Germans need to be there, the uh, UK needs to be there. And that poses problems for countries, and I think here specifically about the United States, that have mm abolished their infrastructure for attending expos and have to organize to attend every expo on an ad hoc way with disastrous, you know, there was no US presence at the Hanover World's Fair. The World's Fair in Aceh, Japan in 2004, the US was funded, fully funded by Toyota for Dubai, the attempts to raise money to attend fizzled and, the, and, and some 
kind person in Dubai is paying for the U.S. to be there just just for the prestige of the event, because if the U.S. isn't there, the, the quality of the event is diminished. So I, I would also say that to be a great power, to be a, a leader in world affairs, you need to be present at mega events and you need to do a good job. That goes with the territory, too. I entirely disagree, Nick. I know you do. <laughs> I, I just I wish somebody would explain to me what an expo is for. It just seems to me to be the height of absurdity that expecting people to pay money to go and be voluntarily subjected to to weak nation branding pavilions by by, by countries. I mean, it's advertising. Why should you have to pay to experience it? What is the benefit? In I've been to an expo. I went to the one in Milan, and I just thought it was absolutely surreal. Here were all these people walking up and down listening to pitches from countries about the wonderful cows in Kazakhstan and the and the wonderful steel in Lower Silesia. And I just thought to myself, first of all, this is B2B communication being targeted at a consumer audience. So it's mostly just completely misses the mark. But also, secondly, what, what, what are they all trying to do? What are they hoping to achieve by this? It, it's it's mostly just a scam, to be honest with you, because the the team that gets to go to the wonderful city, Milan or wherever it is, and a few weeks early to set up the pavilion and, and glad hand a lot of VIPs and all the rest of it. I think that's the main reason countries go on these things is because they've got a group of five people who are friends of the president's family who want to go along and man the stand and have a wonderful time. I mean, what, what it actually does, it's never been measured, but certainly in, in the Nation Brands Index, there is absolutely no correlation whatsoever between expos and the images of countries thereafter, at least with the Olympics or, or, the, or the, the Men's World Cup or the Winter Olympics, and increasingly also the Women's World Cup, you do find there's a little blip. It doesn't last very long. It just lasts a few months. But countries are a, li- a little bit more front of mind after those things, if the thing goes well and everybody has a lovely time, for three or four months afterwards. And then countries, as I've often said, are attached to their conventional image by a piece of very strong elastic. And you can do something titanic to pull it a little way away from its conventional image. But within two or three months at the very, very most, it'll just snap back again to where it was before. And so I just encourage governments to ask themselves, is this really worth it? And if it turns out to be worth it, how will we know it was worth it? What are we measuring and how? And how can we be sure that we're not just doing this because everybody else is? Another way of getting into this and maybe a thing to measure is not just national image, but the salience of a particular idea. And it would be interesting to know whether, for example, the Shanghai World's Fair increased the thinking about sustainability, which it was dedicated to. Did Milan actually promote uh, people thinking about the global food supply, which the expo was dedicated to. Maybe rather than thinking of it in terms of is this country more famous or less famous as a result of expo, to look think about, well, collectively, did we move the ball forward on that issue? And I don't know whether they did or not, but it, that might be a, a better question to, or another, a different question. Now you're talking my language. And I think that uh, the, the expo is a gigantic piece of unexpressed potential. The idea that the world is actually probably missing a non-sport Olympics and one that has a purpose, a shared purpose. And to be fair, 
the talk in and around the Emirati government prior to the Dubai Expo was very much along those lines. We want to showcase the idea of sustainability at the Expo. And the idea, they weren't quite as explicit as you just were about all of the participating countries partaking in a collective effort to promote that agenda. But I think that's the right track. That's what we need to see. Those are the discussions we need to be having. So the final part of this uh, story of mega events is risk. Once you invite people, you give them the option of saying no or of using the, the, the attention directed towards the mega event to accentuate the negative. And we've got this history now of boycotts. How do you see that developing? And should some countries think twice before even hosting a mega event because of danger of uh, boycotts and negatives being being accentuated? What do, what, do, what do you think about the Qatar World Cup? I mean, we've been part of conversations around that. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think all countries should think not twice, but six times before they host any event, no matter how big or small, because there are downsides and there are upsides. And in my experience of, of uh, talking with governments as they work towards these events, it's astonishing how little talk there is, how little scenario planning goes on. Um, I've had to encourage a number of governments in the past to just basically do that simple exercise of saying, now let's just run through all the things that could go wrong. The, the, the scenario planning they do tends to be, you know, what happens if there's a terrorist strike? What happens if the trains don't work? What happens if the stadium isn't ready? But 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 no more than that. And I think that uh, the whole the whole business of mega events is looked at through a very, very, very narrow eyepiece. And I think it's it's time that sensible government started looking at it much more broadly. Yes, the risk is is always going to be serious. And particularly in this age of pandemics, what happens if there's another pandemic? What happens if it turns out to be a mega spreader event and we only discover that afterwards? Because the level of blame that could attach to a country after something like that would be very hard to expunge within even a generation. Right. So uh, this is serious stuff. It's serious investment, it's serious risk, and it's serious philosophically. What, what is your entitlement to do this? Why are you doing it? Is it? Are you offering something to humanity? We're left, you know, like the old words of the English marriage service, where, you know, it should mm. not be taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly or wantonly, but reverently, mm. soberly and discreetly. Don't rush, folks. Don't rush to host a mega event. I think that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold.